another edition of Rick Willis in San Diego. I am joined by a San Diegan I've known since I think it was 1996, 97. Um, no, it's got to be way before then. Really? Because yep. I graduated in 91. Well, let me just tell you, his name is Marco Gonzalez. He is an amazing human being. The stuff that he has done, we're going to get into that. The stuff that he's doing, the stuff that he does on the side is absolutely amazing. First and foremost, Marco, thank you for saving my bacon on this whole thing. And I hope you're recording it too. I'm recording it, but you know, we were just talking about contracts and all these different things. And I'm like learning about real estate contracts and I kind of got messed over in, in, in a deal that I just did. And, you know, you really got to cross your, cross your T's and dot your I's, don't you? All the time. It's what lawyers do. Yeah. Let's talk about, first and foremost, we, so we met deal. each we other through California Pizza Kitchen. We, yep. we started waiting. We were waiting tables in the early 90s. I think I started first waiting in the summer of 92. Okay. And I think you might have started there, or I might have met you in the summer of 94. Okay. Well, actually, I'm going to correct you because I was actually one of the people that, that was one of the original bus boys at California Pizza Kitchen. That's how I know okay. you're, who's originally, who, I mean, who is your, your very good friend yep. in Frank. And it's funny because we were texting back and forth. And just to let everybody know, Marco lived on the couch when we were living in PB when I was living with Frank. Yep. Now I was I coming said, up from college and still working at CPK. And is he really? <laughs> oh, we're going to have to sit in this podcast after work because <laughs> that's so. And I texted you. I was like, yeah, well, I was, I was just joking with you because I don't honestly, I don't care. But I was like, you never pay rent. You said, no, I, I paid Frank. Yeah. I you know how much Frank I got from Frank? On the couch and for storing all my crap behind the couch. Yeah. For those two to three months in the summer, it was awesome. Yeah. But I guess he didn't share it with you. He did not share it with me, <laughs> you know, but let's start with that because actually that, you know, living with you and Frank, that was where my love of surfing came about because you guys used to be, you guys used to like do bodyboard contests, right? Up yeah, in New so, York, like Santa Cruz and stuff like that. Yeah. So Frank and I actually, we both grew up in Vista and we started bodyboarding. When we were young and when we were about freshmen in high school. We started competing. Um, it was kind of in the heyday of bodyboarding around 1985. And then as we got our cars, when we turned 16 in 1986, he and I would travel all around the state and we would compete in, um, in contests and kind of got to the point where we were, we were doing pretty well. I think our junior and senior year, we took first and second or first and third in the state. No, really? Yeah. Yeah. I was first, I know our senior year, I was first and Frank was third in the state. Did you and give then, him uh, any grief about that? Oh, I always gave him grief. <laughs> That's all we did. We were best friends. We just talked yeah. smack and gave each other a hard time all the time. Yeah. But then I went up to college and I continued to compete while I was in college. And it was really around the end of college. We were both kind of 21, 22. He was still living down in La Jolla. He was living in a studio then. This was before that. he moved in with you. Yeah. And he started riding longboards. And when I came home for the summer and lived with him in La Jolla, we both would jump on longboards when the waves were small. And, you know, I kind of grew <laughs> a lot. You know, I was, when I graduated high school, I was about 160 pounds and six. Mm -hmm. Two six three, now I'm six five two forty, and uh, you know all of a sudden I'm <laughs> trust me I know uh, 
I remember when I when I saw you one time, man. Yeah. Got on a longboard and, and you know I've been surfing pretty much nonstop ever since. That's so awesome. Is that where your love for the ocean came from? You know, my passion for the ocean definitely evolved during the high school period. Yeah. You know, growing up in Vista, being a fisherman and a surfer, it was just an escape from that kind of inlander, yeah. North County, conservative, kind of football player focused high school experience. It saved me. You know, it took me out of a place where I was pretty just, I didn't feel at home and at the mm. beach. I felt like those were my people. And, you know, surfing was everything to me. I didn't know at that point that it would become such a pivotal part of my my long-term career, but it was definitely where I found my kind of spiritual salvation. You know, it's so interesting because there are people that, you know, there's a guy I grew up uh, with, Ramchato, and he he made a movie, I think it was called The Soul Surfer, but he's totally, you know, I, I'd known him since kindergarten, but the thing is, is he stop competing because he says, I don't surf to win titles. He goes, I surf because it's my inner peace. Is that yeah, how it is for you? Last night. <laughs> oh, did you really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, text me a, back one time. There's a little surf festival going on here in Encinitas right now. And he was there last night. Yeah. You know, Rob took his professional career and evolved it into really this combination pro surfer humanitarian kind of role where he travels the world and he gives money to various charities. He has his own charity and they do a lot of work around clean water and drinking water and, and anti-plastics. And, you know, there's just a lot of different routes you can take in surfing. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up taking a professional route that wasn't professional surfing, but I was kind of adjacent to that working in the nonprofit realm, bringing lawsuits over clean water and, doing a lot of activism around clean water. And that all stems back to being a surfer, protecting what you love. You know, that's the thing, because, you know, a lot of people don't know you. I remember you got a lot of grief because you were one of the big activists in the fireworks festival. But then, you know, I've done my research on, on all of that. And I've really kind of, I've especially changed my focus and realized how important it is can you speak to that? Like you being a, a lawyer and then just everybody's like, oh, Marco, that's the guy that's ruining our 4th of July thing. Well, what was that like for you? Well, how so you deal with that? You have to look at it in the context. I mean, like how I look at it personally is in the context of my bigger career kind of picture. When I got out of law school, I immediately came back down here to San Diego. I was up in Lewis and Clark in Portland, Oregon. And I started doing environmental protection work right out the gate. And there just weren't a lot of people doing it. And I offered my services pro bono to a lot of different groups. Mm-hmm. And very early on, you know, you're, you're fighting the biggest players in government. You're fighting the biggest players right. in the development industry, the biggest polluters in the industrial community. And you kind of get used to this role of, of kind of a punching bag, you know, the moneyed interests that don't like what you do because you cost them money, you know, Mm -hmm. you get used to that and you play that role. With the fireworks, it was interesting because the fireworks weren't really my biggest issue. I had a lot of stuff I was doing on sewage spills and stormwater runoff and ocean health. But when it came to fireworks, there were two things. One, it was SeaWorld. And because SeaWorld was shooting off into the bay every single night, and there were so many complaints that I would get from people regarding their dogs, their kids, the water quality and everything. And then there were the issues up in La Jolla where we spent about 10 years trying to protect the 
ecological preserve that's right offshore of the children's pool there. And that's right where they shoot off the 4th of July fireworks. And a ton of that fireworks trash goes right into that reserve. So I just saw it as, look, the Clean Water Act requires people to get permits before they discharge into water. And I was just looking at these very blatant, very loud, very public discharges that didn't have permits. And yeah. I didn't say you can't do it. I said you have to get a permit. Get a permit. And as soon as you tell someone they have to get a permit and have to spend money, then the PR campaign starts and <laughs> they start vilifying you. And suddenly you're the Grinch who stole, you know, 4th of July. Right. Honestly, the mentally, though, man, because I mean, you know, we're going to get into some other stuff that's for both of us that touches home for both of us. But mentally, how do you deal with that when people portray you like for you personally? How do you deal with that? And how did you move past that where people portray you as the villain? So it's gnarly. I will say that. And really, you know, when you're doing just the environmental stuff and you know, we live in a society, unfortunately, where it's us versus them, Republicans versus Democrats, right versus left. And when you're being attacked by the other side and the other side are people who you ideologically don't agree with, it's not really that hard to just, you know, kind of flip them off and say, you go your way, I'm going to go mine and say right. what you want. You know, it's sticks and stones may break my bones kind of stuff. Yeah. The fireworks fight was particularly difficult because it had that patriotic bent. And because oh. my last name is Gonzalez, there were a lot of racial undertones to the stuff. And there were blatant racist. Are you? Uh, wait, 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 back it up. This is, oh, yeah. this is a lot of years ago before, you know, all, I mean, we, we realized that, you know, America doesn't really agree on race. So this was, this was back then. Oh yeah. Yeah. 2003, four, five, six, all that people would, you know, make all kinds of, of comments on, um, on newspaper articles and send me direct email saying, you know, someone ought to shoot this guy back across the border where he came from. You know, this guy's an illegal loving, you know, immigrant supporting America, hating wetback spick. I mean, I got called everything under the sun and, you know, frankly, and none of that was as difficult where things really, really hit it for me was you'll remember, uh, mayor Bob Filner, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Resigning. <laughs> I had a coworker that worked for Lene Lewis, worked for Mayor Bob Filner, and she ended up quitting. Uh, so a lot of people thing. forget, but um, I represented about 20 of the women and kind of orchestrated that whole. Thing. Oh, really? Yeah, that was I was deep in the middle of that and working with Donna Fry and Corey Briggs. And um, I was involved in kind of the media side of, of strategically putting the pressure on him, utilizing my political connections in my sister's recent election to really coerce him into resigning. And the difficulty there was there were a lot of Democrats who didn't want to see him resign, and they kind of came after me as well. And at the end of the day, what I retreated to, your first question is, how do you deal with this, is you rely on the people around you who love you unconditionally, who always have your back. So when I get attacked, one of the things that I do is I go on social media and I put it out there. I'm like, here are the people coming after me. And what happens is those people who support me, my family, my friends, my activism community, they surround me with, with just that energy and that love. And they say- Unconditional okay, love. Yep. Here's how we're going to make sure you know that even though you're the guy who's out there taking it on the chin, you're not alone. We're right here behind you. When you need us, Like we'll jump in and be surrogates for you on these comment boards or whatever. But that's critical. You know, The people who don't have that, I think eventually, like you get this, I don't know, I call it kind of a PTSD that I had after the Filner thing, where like 
you just retreat and you're like, okay, I got to think twice before I put myself out there again and become the whipping boy of, of these internet trolls who just can anonymously come out and just be as mean as possible. Pretty gnarly. Because one of the things like we're going to talk about it because, you know, your sister was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. And we'll talk about that. And your mom passed away. And my daughter is in remission from leukemia. But one of the things that for me that was so hard to deal with was just dealing with it myself without that. I ended up having to go to therapy, you know, and people think you go to therapy didn't. And, you know, you're crazy. And, you know, did you do any therapy or anything like that? Because I listen, I go to therapy, man. I, I have I have no problem telling anybody that, you know, I've never had to treat the stuff that has kind of happened like publicly from my political work. There was a period, a short period after my mother passed away where I just realized I kind of turned into a, an asshole on all yeah. fronts, I was just bitter about everything. And, yep. you know, trying to run my firm and deal with my family and deal, I was just mm -hmm. way past reasonable. And um, I started taking some antidepressants for about five, six months. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of helped just level me out for that, that period where I was struggling with her death and like, just kind of my own mortality, I guess, at that point. Right. Um, but for the most part, like, there'll be periods where I'll get all stressed out and things will get hectic. And the first thing I do is take stock in, in how much I'm surfing because by and large, if I'm surfing regularly, that stuff doesn't pile up. It just doesn't. You know, they, they say exercise is the greatest form of helping people mentally. And I mean, there is, listen, if you've paddled out, cause I, I remember when Frank took me to old man's uh, when it was like 20 feet up there and in, in Sano, like, bro, I'm sure you know, paddling over a 20-foot wave, dude, and paddling out in that that break whoop, scares you. Yeah, yeah. And um, the exercise that surfing is, is such a huge thing. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, the exercise is definitely a piece of it. But for me, it, it's an interesting concept, right? You spend all day, every day surrounded by so many people, and you are just kind of in this constant state of, traffic and people on the street, people in the office, whatever. And you go out on your surfboard, it doesn't matter how crowded the break is, you can paddle to the outside of the break and look out on the horizon and suddenly you're alone. There's nobody there. Yeah. You know, you might have to paddle really far out depending on where you're at. But right, right. That that notion of of being right. able to find solace and solitude when surfing like any day of the week is pretty critical. It's like having a forest at your backyard or or something like that. You just, you have this connection with nature. There's a natural meditation that happens when you surf because uh, waves aren't coming all the time. Right. So you're, you're kind of out there alone with your thoughts waiting for the next set. And I think that's something that we don't always spend time doing in our hectic days. So mm -hmm. all of that, I think is part of the restorative kind of natural spiritual healing aspect of surfing that here I am at 50, almost 52 years old, you know, looking back, 35 years, mm -hmm. you know, that plus years, like that's, what's kept me sane all the way along. Let's switch gears a little bit. Your sister is, uh, I want to make sure I, Lorena, is it Lorena? What is her exact last title, name? She's assembly woman, Lorena Gonzalez. Okay. She is a assembly member for the 80th uh, assembly district. And she is the chair of the state assembly appropriations committee. 
you know, it's interesting because I was actually talking to a person because she actually put a bill on about uh, high school football. And I did a story on it when I was at KUSI. And the thing is, is that I kind of went through and I I got both sides of the story because that's the thing. You get both sides of the story and you understand both sides because I, I mean, but she she does it a lot. But the thing is, she was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. And your mom was, she had breast cancer twice and she passed away the second time. You kind of spoke to the first time when your mom was diagnosed, but how about when your sister was diagnosed? Because, you know, it sounds like you and your sister are very close. Yeah, we are. You know, she has, uh, her and Nathan Fletcher have uh, a couple of kids that are Nathan's and a couple of kids that are hers. And my kids and her kids, Nathan's kids, they're all very close. So, you know, we vacation with them and we see them on the holidays and whatnot, regularly sports and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom's death was was traumatic for the whole family back in 2007. And while in some ways it kind of brought us all together, it also, you know, we lost the matriarch of the family. And so it's always been hard to kind of recapture what sort of family unity we have had as adults with her around. But what it did for my sister is it made her extra diligent with respect to mammograms and diagnostics, blood tests and stuff. And so she was able to capture this cancer so early. It was technically stage zero and it was in one breast. And she went in and she said, you know, I'm not messing around with it. I'm going to take a very aggressive stance. She had a a radical bilateral mastectomy and, um, during the surgery, you know, they look at the lymph nodes and do a bunch of other diagnostics to see. And, and you know, going into the surgery, you know, we kind of, everyone kind of looked at it like, okay, we've been through some gnarly stuff and it's been a while, but we all know what it's like. We're not going to jump the gun. We're going to wait and see how it goes. We know she's doing surgery and we're going to wait and see how the surgery goes. And luckily it was what they call a curative surgery in that um, following the surgery, there was no sign of cancer anywhere in her body. So she doesn't have to do chemo. She doesn't have to do radiation. She's just going to be in recovery for a little while. And, you know, then she's going to jump right back into her work. It's kind of how she is. That, you know, because, I mean, as as you know, like my daughter's in remission from Philadelphia, PHALA positive leukemia. And it's crazy what cancer does to a family. Because, you know, I, I remember being in media and I would, you know, you just were focused on, oh, let's get the story. But there's more than the story. It doesn't just mess with that person. It messes with everybody who loves that person and everybody like you were talking about who is in your inner circle. Yeah. And, you know, when my mom died, because she had such broad tentacles, it was it was actually it's kind of funny to look back on it. But um, she was on some blood thinning medication that caused her to throw a clot or uh to um to have a brain aneurysm oh my gosh and she was at the hospital and she was pretty much gone and the doctors were upping her morphine and we were all standing around my brother my sister my stepdad uncles aunts cousins and we're all saying our goodbyes and in the middle of that she opens up one eye and literally she goes did the chargers win Like that was so my mom, like we're sitting there saying goodbye. And all of a sudden she snaps back to it. And the doctors are like, holy shit, hold on, hold on. Pop the morphine. Like, let's get her back in. And within an hour or two, she was lucid again and right back at it. But she just turned us and she said, look, guys, I'm not going to last. 
We've known this. Mm -hmm. And she came home a week later and we invited a hundred people to the house to say goodbye. Yeah. And it was a very stoic, but uh, unique thing for her to be able to just say, okay, this is your chance. Yes, I'm medicated. But um, so we kind of had a, almost like she had her own funeral right? and got to say goodbye to everybody. And then for the next couple weeks until she eventually did die, it was just the family kind of at events and she died the day after Thanksgiving. So we were all kind of with her the day before. But it was it, it was a lot of closure. It was a lot of opportunity for closure. She didn't have a super long treatment period the second time around. It was nine yeah. months, did chemo, didn't really work. Before you knew it, it was over. And yeah. so because we got a lot of closure, it didn't have that lingering kind of opportunity to say what you need to say kind of thing mm-hmm. that happens with like heart attacks and stuff. Right. But then the long-term ramifications of that has been this kind of decade plus long numbness where you look at it now, my mom smoked cigarettes. My mom worked in uh, radiology in a hospital. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of external environmental factors that could have affected her cancer. Mm -hmm. But you still find yourself saying, you know, there's a random component to it. And I know that I could be healthier in the way that I eat, the amount that I exercise, the amount of sugar I take in. You know, like you start looking at your own life and saying, you know, is there something that I could do to avoid what happened to her? But then at the same time, you hear about all these people who are like triathletes who have heart attacks and vegans who die of heart disease. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's like you kind of end up just throwing your hands up in the air and going, shit, like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And you just hope you don't have the bad luck. You know, my father is 80 years old. He outlived my mom by a ton. He's still alive. But he was super unhealthy. He drank a lot. He smoked cigarettes. He he had a sedentary lifestyle his whole life. And yet here he is, 80 years old, and he's still kicking. And my mom died at 62. Like, wow. life just doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, it's crazy that you say that because when I found out, I I went and I researched for, for Karina, my daughter, like what it was. And I was like, shoot, did it come from me? Did it come from... Like, is it a genetic thing? Well, this one that they get is just a random thing where the number five chromosome connects to the number 23 chromosome randomly just because it freaking wants to, you know? And that's that, that's exactly what you just what you just said. You just don't know, right? Right. We'll lighten it up a little bit because I know this is this is for both of us. This is a big thing. I, I do want to ask you this though. For you, how important do you think it is to just make sure that you, how would I put it? Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself first. Yeah. And then, and then, because that's one thing I learned, take care of yourself first, because then you're the best Marco you can be for, you have a, what, you have a, a son and a daughter, is that correct? Yeah. Son and a daughter, and, daughter. and your family. How yeah. important is it to take care of yourself first? So, you know, for a lot of years in my career, I was working a lot. 60, 70, 80 hours a week and just going at 100 miles an hour. And um, and it took its toll, you know, especially after I had kids. I kind of recognized I wasn't seeing my kids as much as I wanted to. I was just at the office so late and they were going to bed early. And mm. in 2014, I had some weird neurological kind of symptoms come up where my eyes got kind of funny. I've never been able to find out what it was. At first, we thought it was like MS or something. I think it was just my eyes going shitty because I got old. But um, the next year after that all started, I decided that I would take one week off every month. 
and not just like one week of vacation, but a week out of the office at a trade show or maybe on vacation. But for one year, I worked 25% less. And the funny thing was, I made the same amount of money. I built the same number of hours. It was just kind of a mindset of efficiency and health. And I pared down the things that I spend my fun time on. I used to just have a bazillion hobbies. And I came back to the big four for me. It's fishing, surfing, mountain biking, and then skiing and snowboarding. Mm -hmm. And I just basically told my partners, my family, every all my friends, I'm like, this is who I am. This is what I do. And if I don't do these things, I'm not a good lawyer. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. I'm not a good friend. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I had to do was get over the guilt of like, oh, the waves are good. It's 11 o'clock in the middle of the day. I'm going to go surfing and not feel bad that there's 10 things on my desk that I need to get to because this is my mental and physical health. And that's at least equally important to that guy in LA who needs a contract by Friday. Right. Dude, that's prophetic, man. I'm being honest because I know what you mean, man. Like, it's just, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't be there for everybody else. But let's, let's talk about something, you know, cause we're friends on social media. One of the things that, that I see on social media all the time is Mr. Marco Gonzalez is quite a fisherman. <laughs> I want to, I want to ask you, what's the biggest fish you ever caught? And don't, don't give me some old man in the sea BS, you know, that, that Frank had me read from Ernest, <laughs> from Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. You know, fishing, fishing was my passion before surfing ever was. And actually fishing because of fishing, I discovered bodyboarding and the ocean for surfing. Mm -hmm. um, my biggest fish is a 265 pound bluefin. Wow. And my next biggest I caught this last weekend, which was about a 230 pound. But getting to that, when I was young, growing up in Vista, I was into fishing freshwater. The local rivers, lakes, like in backcountry Vista, little ponds, fishing yeah. path. Every year we went up to Southern Oregon for a couple of weeks for vacation and I'd fish the lake that we went to and the Rogue River. And I just, I loved fishing. It was something that my grandparents had instilled in me. Mm -hmm. And when I got older, like 12, we used to take the bus from Vista to Oceanside Harbor and fish the bait docks there. Mm -hmm. And in the, the middle of the day, the fish would stop biting. It would be really warm. And so we started walking across the sand and going body surfing at North Jetty Oceanside. No way. And uh, after a while, we stopped bringing the fishing poles and we started bringing boogie boards. And next thing you knew, we kind of were part of that community of kids who were there every day all summer long. And uh, we fished a lot less. And really, it was just, it, it became all things surfing. In about 2013, I was mountain biking a lot and I'd become a little bit of an influencer in the local mountain bike scene. And I was really curious about Instagram and how it was being used by different sectors for, mm -hmm. for business and whatever. Right. And literally just laying in bed one night, I was wondering what the fishing industry in San Diego, how invested they were in Instagram at that point was that seven, eight years ago. Right. And as I started looking through certain hashtags, I started seeing some people that I, I knew or that knew people that I knew. Mm -hmm. And it just mushroomed into this, this kind of thing where, you know, I'd been fishing my whole life, but, you know, I'd go once or twice a year. But as I got more into it, I started asking, like, what would it be like to become an influencer in the fishing community here? And what issues are they dealing with? And how does that dovetail with my ocean conservation work? And 
it just snowballed into this thing where now I just, you know, I've met and worked with a lot of boat captains and pro staff fishermen and companies that make everything from fishing related clothing to restaurants to gear. And uh, yeah, I'm having a blast with it. And then the fishing's phenomenal right now, better than it's been in a hundred years. Yeah. And so we're catching these big fish right outside our, our doorstep where we used to have to go, you know, on a week long trip. Right. So, that brings up the question. Is that why you're so let's think back to that from fishing to bodyboarding to, you know, doing all those other things that you do in the outdoors. Is that why part of the reason why you decided to become an, you know, uh, such a person for the environment and get into law? So I always just wanted to surf, right? Like Frank and I had this lifestyle that that you saw where, you know, we all, we worked nights, you know, once you became kind of a senior waiter at the, at the restaurant, you got a good shift, you worked nights and that meant you could surf all day long. Mm-hmm. So even in law school, I struggled with the notion of having a nine to five, you know, like sitting in an office. Right. And uh, actually, when I was in law school, after my second year, I went to Europe and studied for a few months and then uh, came back here to San Diego for the first semester of my third year and worked in a law office downtown with a guy who was doing environmental law. Yeah. And I quickly realized the fact that I was home and I knew the coastline and I knew the backcountry of San Diego and I'd grown up here. I had a much more intimate connection to the land that needed saving than some of the other folks who were working in this. Right. And specifically when we did ocean related stuff, you know, I could tell you everything about the coastline from Coronado to Trestles because I'd surfed every break for so yeah. for so long at that point. And so I looked around, and I was like, wow, the place that I love is actually going to shit and there's no one doing anything about it. Yeah. And then I could recall being in high school and going up to Newport River jetties and competing in a in a bodyboard contest there and right after a rainstorm and it smelling like like stinky cabbage and realizing now that that was like raw sewage probably running right down the Santa Ana River oh in the surf zone. Yeah. You know like I just realized that I care about San Diego. I care about where I'm from and I have this knowledge and this tool that you know I spent a lot of time and money to acquire and you know, I just, I got out of law school, went out on my own and it just, you know, when you start doing good things, it perpetuates itself, mm-hmm. right? You get a couple wins and you realize like you can do it. Even though I was inexperienced and young, I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to do crazy shit. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier. Can I ask you a question? Because I, I'm kind of going through that a little bit with doing stuff that I'm doing. When you do crazy shit and people look at you in the they think that you're self-serving, but you're actually not self-serving. You're actually doing it because you actually care about people and care about things. I just have to ask you what you think about that because I'm getting a lot of that right now too. So in my career as a lawyer, I would take a lot of cases on where I don't get paid unless I win. Mm -hmm. And I won a lot, but I would have to invest in a case for two to five, even seven years Mm-hmm. without ever seeing a paycheck from that case. Right. And so sometimes those payoffs would be kind of big and they'd make the press and people would come after me as just being a greedy guy. And, you know, I developed this mantra, like if you look at what I do and you think it's because of the money, that says more about you than it does about me. You can come and look at my lifestyle, look at my house, look at my car. And yeah, I have a lot of surfboards and fishing poles, but 
compared to lawyers who have a lot of cars and big houses and take expensive trips, I live a very modest lifestyle. I'm not extravagant in how I live. And so I don't need a lot. Yeah. And I pour a lot back into the people who work for me, the people who work around me and the community around me. You know, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's a component of knowing who you are and feeling okay. Like, again, people are going to attack you for whatever, but there was a, there's kind of a self-confidence that went along with being a young lawyer doing high profile work, you know, coming out of law school, being a surfer, I didn't like the idea of wearing a suit. I mean, obviously if I go to court, I got to wear a suit. Sometimes at city council, I got to wear a tie, whatever. But for my everyday lawyering, it's kind of like I am now here in the office. I was wearing a hat, a t-shirt, flip-flops, carrying a backpack, not a briefcase. And what was interesting (laughs) was I would go into these meetings on like the 20th floor of a building in San Diego, dressed like a punk. And these old guys would look at me And I came to realize that there was this interesting thing going on. First of all, it was the beginning of the dot-com era. So there was kind of a dressing down of formality and business. But when you come in looking like a punk, they can look at you and say, this guy's a punk. I'm going to steamroll him. He doesn't know what he's doing. In which case, I'm going to beat them because I know I'm going to work harder. And I know I'm smart enough, Mm -hmm. right? So let them underestimate me because I dress down. But something else happened a lot. People started looking at me, and as they heard about me in the press, they'd say, holy shit, that guy might be a rock star. That guy might be dressing down as like kind of a disarming strategic thing. And then they'd be a little scared. And so I realized that unless, as long as I'm not lazy and as long as I I know my shit, I can't lose by just being me. Mm -hmm. Just being the relaxed surfer that I've always been, but knowing that I've done the work I'll go home and do the work. I'll stay up all night writing my briefs if I have to. I came to realize, like, just be yourself and you can't lose. And it just pervaded every aspect of my life and business. Marco, I, I didn't feel like <laughs> I had a, a lot in common, except you're way smarter than I am. I, I got a journalism degree and you have a law degree. So I, I'm just, hey, bro, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. Well, because I don't want to take up any more of your time. This is one of my favorite parts, one of the most fun parts of the uh, Rick Willis in San Diego podcast. You grew up in San Diego. I grew up in San Diego. We know San Diego from like East County to, to Sano, you know what I mean? And there's probably a lot of places that you went in the morning before surfing to go eat what this is how I, how I frame it because it's, it's a, it kind of a real estate question. You want your friend to, to come here. You want your friend to, to move to San Diego and you want to give them the best breakfast possible. What is the best breakfast place that you would take them to? That's tough. Um, I used to do a lot of breakfast around town and, and I'm super uh, committed to the bubble, the bubble of Encinitas, Solana Beach, like while I've lived down in PB and La Jolla and Bird Rock, and I've lived in Oceanside, Vista, Carlsbad, like I love where I'm at right here in Encinitas. And so, you know, if I'm having a breakfast, a surfing breakfast, you know, I think Pipes in Cardiff. Oh my God. The Pipes big breakfast, the big, the burritos, like it's, oh, it's the number two. Oh. super easy right by Cardiff where I surf all the time. So that's an easy breakfast. Oh, breakfast. By the way, what's your favorite break in San Diego? Cardiff Reef by far. Okay. I'm pipes. Spent the last 25 years pretty much surfing it, you know, oh, multiple okay. times per week. That's yeah. my community. Yeah, I, I I like pipes just south of Swami's just because yep. just it's a smooth reef break. But okay, so now 
you get done surfing, you're starving. You don't want to take that person to go get some lunch. Um, lunch it's actually time. a stone's throw from pipes. Uh-huh. Fish 101. Really? Fish 101 right around the corner. Poke bowls, shrimp, burritos. It's everything you want in a lunch right there. The close second would be right up here next to my office, uh, City Tacos. They've got some of the best tacos around. They they have a place, I think, in Imperial Beach in North Park as well. But um, but Fish 101, they've got Lucadia and, and Cardiff and, uh, yeah, I'm all about it. Okay. And finally, now, this is the big one because everybody's all about nice dinner and everything like that. You're going to take somebody out for dinner. They're about to leave town tomorrow. And they're saying, gosh, I don't know if I want to, you know, live here in San Diego, but you're just doing everything you can. And this is your last hurrah of saying, this is why San Diego is so awesome. Because honestly, San Diego is, I think, the best food in, I've ever. Yeah. But where where do you take them? Well, so, you know, for dinner, it you can't go with just ambiance, right? Because you got like Pacific Coast Grill and these places that have these amazing ocean views. But if you're talking just about the food, then you have to ask yourself, like, is this person a sushi person? Because if they're if they're a seafood and sushi person, I think Wrench and Rodent in South Oceanside. Oh, I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, dude, that place is phenomenal. And, yeah. and it's a little different. If you can get omakase and sit up there with Davin Waite, the, the chef there, I mean, he's going to put stuff in front of you that you never thought you'd eat, and it's going to be amazing. Right. But if you want more of a kind of a casual fine dining just really, really good food and ambiance. Uh, Valentina in Lucadia. Never been there. Is, is one of my favorites. Valentina in Lucadia. Where's that? Valentina. It used to be Moto Deli. It's um, oh, okay. Right, at, right between Europa yeah, and on the 101, Europa. right? Yeah, right on the 101. Okay. Okay. Well, Marco, I really want to thank you for your time and I want to thank you for saving my, my tukis on this whole thing because I had trouble with the zoom. So that just kind of shows what kind of guy you are and everything like that. And, uh, and honestly, I learned a lot about you and I want the next time you talk to Frank, you tell him I'll send you the address of where to send the check for rent. Okay. This is good. So are you Esquire by the way? Yeah. I mean, technically once you get your JD, you can be Esquire, but kind of a douchey thing for lawyers to put on their own letterhead and stuff. So, yeah. so, so that, that is just non Esquire. That is Marco Gonzalez. And I'll tell you what, I've known him for a long time. And the fact that I've known him for a long time and he's answered my phone calls and my texts and, and still, you know, likes me. <laughs> Knowing you mean for this long, right, Marco? You know it. Yeah. It just shows what kind of guy he is. And so this is Rick Willis in San Diego. And I will talk to you sooner than later. 